My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Last week I shared how I'm kind of a product of the 70s as a kid growing up in that decade, enjoying all that the decade had to offer. The music, the movies, the television. I shared about happy days and how I really you know, fell in love with the idea of riding a motorcycle because of the fawns and all that stuff. Well, I liked all kinds of television when I was a kid. And so I'd come home and uh, there would be television on and I would switch it to really educational programming like Gilligan's Island or Petticoat Junction or something, you know, Green Acres or something, Beverly Hillbillies, whatever will just like raise up a young man's IQ. And what I discovered was that as much as I loved television and shows, I loved commercials. Commercials were amazing in the 70s. I mean, they've got some good ones today with CGI and stuff like that. But back in the 70s, it was the beginning of this whole infomercial idea. And it was all led by a guy named Ron Popeil. Now, most of us wouldn't know who that guy is, but we know his company, Ronco. Remember Ronco? Ronco Ronco sold dreams. Ronco Ronco sold aspirations. Ron was on television sharing the very first infomercial ever, convincing women that their life was not complete without his product. And it was this product right here, the Chopomatic. Ron did the very first infomercial. You can see it on YouTube. It's only a couple minutes long. Basically, his dad had a warehouse and bought all kinds of plastic garbage, some stuff, and you throw batteries in it, or you make it a certain way and advertise it. This guy's a master at communicating and advertising. And this Chopomatic, ladies, it will chop, it will dice, it will slice, it will make pureed meat, it will chop your tomatoes, it will chop your onions, and you won't even shed a tear. It is the latest innovation in the kitchen. And you could buy one of these for only nine. 95, or I don't know what it was back then. But, it, you know, this whole idea of, you know, but wait, there's more. All Ron. Ron came up with all this. And he sold just a, a warehouse full of items and advertised them as Ronco. So if you're a child of the 70s or maybe some in the 80s, you'll recognize some of these fabulous products. In fact, you'll probably hop on right now eBay and try to get one because they're so life-changing. Here's one right here. Take a look at this one. This is GLH, good-looking hair. This is actually GLH9, good-looking hair, formula number nine. Now, men, if you have bald spots, especially with somebody like, like this, it's, you know, it's really embarrassing, so you need to cover that up with some spray-on hair. 
or spray paint, one of the two. And he sold this, and, and you got to watch the commercials. They're on YouTube. They're hilarious because he's selling this idea of men, you need to be complete, and the babes won't like you. It's funny to listen to some of the language from that time period, some of the sexism. It's hilarious what was on television, television being sold as a spray can. And guys were buying GLH number nine. None of you did, I know, but somewhere. Uh, here's this next one. This is fun. This is the smokeless ashtray. Now, I really would have benefited from this in our household because we lived in an apartment growing up, and my parents both smoked. And so I didn't enjoy that. I mean, I remember, you know, in the car, the smoke and all that stuff, and in the apartment, the smoke. And when I saw this, I thought, we should get this because this is a miracle because what it does is it sucks the, the fumes and the smoke underneath the ashtray through a charcoal filter that then leaves clean air. I needed that. We didn't get that. But there were other items we did get. Uh, this right here, the egg scrambler. Egg scrambler. And this was great because Ron personally had this vendetta against white egg yolk. He, he thought that was gross and slimy. And so the thought of actually mixing up an egg was too much for him. So he thought, I bet you the thought of mixing up an egg is too much for most Americans. So let me help you mix the egg before you even crack it. So you drop that baby on there, whips it up there, and you open it up. And like, how much time did that save us? That was amazing miracle of science, right? And productivity in your kitchen. Battery operated even. This next one, this is pretty fun. This is the food dehydrator. Moms, are you tired of your kids wanting candy? Give them good food, like dried apples, dried bananas. Men, you have meat, you've got venison. Why don't you impress your friends? You make your own jerky, right? And you could do that. That was the food dehydrator. This one right here, this was fun. The Wrecked Vacuum. Now, this is a, you got to watch this commercial. This is great. There's some Soul Brothers in a bachelor pad listening to music with their dates there. And then there's dust on the LP and the record scratches. And got, dudes, you don't want your needles going bad. And there's static cling on records. And so you need this vacuum for your record. Drop it in there. You know, it works not just with LPs. It works with 45s. It works with 78s. And you'd be shocked at what this will do for you and your record collection and how much cleaner your sound will be. This one right here, this was fun. This was the Mr. Microphone. I happen to hold one in my hands right now. New technology. But back then it was through an FM radio. I had one of these. This was awesome because all you needed was a boom box dialed to FM and then you had your microphone and you could dance around. You should watch this commercial. It's amazing. All these kids are roller skating with their socks pulled up to here, dancing with their Mr. Microphones. First karaoke ever. And you could have it for $9.95. This was great. And then this one right here the roller measure. This, I thought, man, if I, if I were a construction worker, I would have had one of these. In fact, this is a little device that rolls along the ground with a three-foot extension cord included for free at no extra cost. But wait, there's more. This works not only if you're a construction worker, this works if you're an interior designer. You not only can lay out a two-by-four and know exactly how much to cut, you can then design better, better arches, and you could measure those arches. Why try that with a tape measure when you can use it with a roller measure? And you could get accurate. You could put it on the ground and measure it if you're landscaping. You could actually use this if you're a seamstress, and you could design clothes knowing the exact measurement. I doubt any serious construction worker would have ever carried something like this to the job site, but it sounded good. This one right here, this was fun. This was the rhinestone stud setter. Now, my dad had one of these. My dad was uh, an aspiring country western singer, had a couple records out and on the radio kind of thing, and he, he became a rhinestone cowboy because of this thing right here. Th this is the pitch. Feeling a little bored with your clothes? 
Go to your closet. There's not much pizzazz. All you need to do is you need to grab the rhinestone stud setter and you could actually just add some glitz right then. Today we call it bling. Back then it was pizzazz. It was just a little bit of just a beautiful sparkle to your day. You could lighten up any wardrobe, your jeans, your shirt, your jacket. You just need some rhinestones. That'll make your life better. But above all products that Ron sold, this was the one that was going to change my life. The pocket fisherman. The pocket fisherman. I dreamed about owning the pocket fisherman because here was my dream. I'd be driving along in my pickup truck and I'd be driving near stream and I'd see fish moving, jumping. I'd, I'd look, there's a hole. I would pull the truck over. I'd reach into my glove box. I'd pull out the pocket fisherman and voila, just like that, I'd have my catch of the day. So one day I found one of these at a garage sale. By the way, most of these things ended up at a garage sale near you. And I found the dream that I had. See, I did not know that I needed this item until Ron came on television and showed me that I was disappointed in life, that I had a hole in my life, that I had this space that could only be filled with the pocket fisherman. And so when I finally acquired my pocket fisherman, a couple realities hit me. One, I was 11 years old and couldn't drive. (laughs) Secondly, I didn't have a pickup truck. And third, I lived in a place where there were no streams. But still, holding the pocket fisherman, casting it in the back of the apartment complex across the asphalt full of cars, I dreamt that one day this pocket fisherman would change my life. Now, I know those are silly examples, but that's what we do all the time with advertisements. Ron was one of the first guys to master this whole idea of creating disappointment in a person's life. I did not know that sadness was going to overtake me until I watched TV. And all of a sudden, a commercial came on, and this little bit of depression entered into my heart. I thought, oh, I have a need. I have a deep-seated need that's not going to be fulfilled unless I buy that product. And if I buy that product, then my life will be back up to filled. And today, that is all over the place for you and for me. I mean, I have an iPhone. I enjoy it. Maybe you have a Galaxy or whatever. That's great. But you know, they sell us a brand new item every year. Why? Not because we need it. Not because there have been that many technological advances, but because they need to line their pockets with trillions of dollars of more cash at our expense, right? And masterfully way that they do this is they create this desire inside of us. If you study marketing, Madison Avenue, if you go back 100 years, you discover that in the old economy, before World War I and World War II, the goal of the free market, advertisers, the goal of, you know, J.C. Penney, Woolworth, or whatever they had back in, Piggly Wiggly, whatever it was. Uh, there used to be one down in Hillsborough I saw uh, in a picture. The goal was to meet the needs of the consumers because they did not want any dissatisfied customers. Now, then people came over after World War I and World War II when the U.S. government created this whole idea called psychological warfare. Psychological warfare was a department of the U.S. government to help us win the war over mind. These people came over and they used Freudian techniques. It's a great study. You can study this. You can see this uh, Century of Self. It's on BBC. You can find that on YouTube too. And it's this great understanding of the fact that we used to be basically satisfied people and advertisers marketed so that we wouldn't have any needs. These guys came back and they said, wait a minute. What we used at time of war to convince the enemy that we were better than them, to give subliminal messages, we can actually use in Madison Avenue, on television, in magazines, on billboards, commercials, music, everywhere, to convince the public that what they need is what we have. And if they don't feel like they have a need, we will go out and create the need. Because we don't want to have satisfied customers. We want to have dissatisfied customers. 
who will only be satisfied with our product. And that is how advertising took off in the last hundred years. That's Mad Men in a nutshell. I just preached the whole Mad Men sermon right there, okay? Now, think about this, though. It, it works. That's why we buy the stuff we buy. That's why we upgrade our vehicles. We don't upgrade our vehicles because they have 200,000 miles on them. We upgrade our vehicles because we saw the advertisement. We saw the movie promo shot. We saw our neighbor with them, right? That that vehicle, that truck, that car, that whatever, that will satisfy us. And we upgrade and we upgrade. Not because we need it, but because it's going to fill a hole in our heart. Uh, we, we don't buy the latest phone or the latest technology, the latest clothes, because we need them. Do we really need more of these things? No, we don't. But advertisers are experts at showing us that we have a need in our heart that can only be filled with that. And they're masterful at it. Now, you think about this. This works in all areas of life. And I would say not just all areas of life, especially in the spiritual area. That today, you could apply all these commercial techniques, all this consumerism to the average church, and the average person would never know the average difference. Because guess what? You have a hole in your heart. And you might not have known this before, but there's this hole in your heart. And God's the only one that can fill the hole. And if you come in and let God, you will be happy, you'll be satisfied, you will have no more needs in your life. There's a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that's out there that says, if you just pray the right prayers, if you just give the right money, if you just go to the right church, if you just watch the right television show, if you just give the offering to that one, then God is obligated to meet your need because that will fulfill you. And then people end up poor and broke and desperate. And then they still have illness and they still have sadness. There's still loneliness and there's still depression because God's not a product, my friends. God is not a product. God is so much greater than that. We have reduced God down to a consumeristic product in a box. For some of us, I'll say this true in my life at times, we treat God like a rhinestone stud setter and we need some pizzazz in our life. We need some glitz. We need some bling in our life. We bring God out and we add some sprinkly, sparkle stuff to whatever we got, right? And that makes everything better. And we put God back in the box until we have a need. I see this. People come to church. I get it. The fact that there's brokenness. I understand that. We have a church that meets the needs, the least, the last, and the lost. I love that. Addiction, recovery, whatever, you name it. I love that because that's what God does and that's what Jesus did. But if we're not careful... We will come with that need, and once that need is fulfilled or we've dumped that bucket of you know, guilt out and we've prayed our prayers and we've had our emotional high and we walk away, we're going to walk away for weeks, months, years until it shows up again and we come back and we dump it all again, right? We're treating God like a consumer. I see it sometimes. People come to church, and after a while, it's like, well, I'm kind of bored, you know. I, I don't know. Maybe I need different worship. I need different preaching, different child care, different youth, different this, different that. And we're going to go shop for another church, right? We just kind of shop for churches because we treat God as if we're consumers and God is there to meet our needs. And if the church doesn't meet our needs, there's another church that's going to meet our needs. Uh, we, we treat God like a pocket fisherman, right? Keep him in the dark in the glove box. You know, he's dinged up a little bit. He's had some wear and abuse. That's okay because he's, you know, he's been used. He's part of the process. But when we see that need, we pull him out and we use him. And we put him back away in the dark. My friends, God is not a product. And we shouldn't be consumers of God. But that's what we have done to the American experience and the American church. 
God is so much greater than that. And I hope today you discover this in the last of our identity theft series. We've been on this series to discover really who God is, who we are, what Christ has done for us, and now who we are because of that, where we stand with God. And in this last message on the identity theft series, I just want to talk about this. I want to talk about the fact that our ultimate identity comes from who God is, not who we are. Who God is. And the Bible paints a picture of God that is a little difficult for us to swallow. Because he's not Santa Claus. He's not a vending machine. He's not a formula. He's not a program. He's not a butler. He's a father. And as we're going to see, father knows best. Jesus shows up on the scene. And in the world that Jesus lived in, is much like the world that we live in 2,000 years ago, there were a lot of religious people. In Jesus' world, the religious people were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zenzels. You see all these people in the New Testament. You see their passionate love of God or using God. Basically, they wanted to get to know God, and so they discovered this path to God, but then they added rules. They added regulations. They created formulas. They created programs, and as they had pathways, then they realized, hey, we got to control this thing. We got to manage this thing. We got to popularize this thing. We got to make money off this thing. We got to package this thing, and we got to keep this thing from anybody who wants to get it unless they go through our door. So we will be the doorkeepers to God. And it it was horrible what they had done. It is horrible what religious people do today. Church people do that all the time. We create simplistic formulas to know God. We disregard all that the Bible says because we add layer upon layer upon layer of all this religious stuff. And now that's fine if you do this, but you got to do this and this and this and this. Churches do it all the time. I grew up in that environment. A lot of religion. Religious people had taken the message of God and commercialized it and kept it from anybody that wasn't willing to follow their agenda or use their pathway. Of course, there were a lot of irreligious people at the time of Jesus, too. And uh, they were called pagans. They were basically the, the people that had discarded God, that were not eligible for the pathway of the religious people, or they'd blown up their life because of their life of sin and things like that. There was a whole under, you know, just this whole under society of people that were just irreligious and wanted nothing to do with God until they had a need, until there was an exam for their finals, their last year of high school or something like that, right? Or until the cop pulled them over and until there was, you know, a crisis in their marriage or a crisis with their money or an identity issue of who am I, what am I going to do? Then you pull God out and then you go to the formula and you use God as another way to get what you want when you need him, but then you put him aside, you put him away when you don't need him anymore. And when Jesus showed up, he blew both groups away because he said, God's not like either of those options. In fact, God is not a product and you are not a consumer. God is a father, and you are a son, or you are a daughter, and he just loves you and wants you to draw close to him. And so when Jesus showed up, he communicated, he preached, he taught, he did miracles. And in one section of scripture that's tied together, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, God through Jesus, really just nails down the issue. And so I want to look at that today. 
I'm going to use the message. It's not a translation. It's a paraphrase. But it just really gets the heart of what Jesus was trying to communicate. And I think you're going to enjoy it. Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to start in uh, verse 5 here. Now, this is what Jesus says. Now, he's been talking about other religious acts, ways we worship God. And then he gets to prayer. He says, and when you come before God, and he's expecting us to come before God. We pray to God. When you pray, when you come before God, don't turn that into a theatrical production either. Don't, don't make it a show. Don't stand up on a stage and pray in such a way that, that where people will be impressed, right? Don't think you're going on American Prayer Idol and you're going to have judges vote for you and people text in or call, right? That's not how it is. Don't go on the celebrity prayer voice, you know, and all of a sudden people are like phoning in or people are judging, you know, and you're, you're the winner, right? It's not how prayer should be. Don't stand on a street corner, which is what they would do, and display your public deeds and the beautiful prayer that you have. Don't dress in such a way that people are going to see you and go, oh, you must be spiritual. You must be connected to God and then think less of themselves. He says, don't turn it into a theatrical production. All these people making a regular show out of their prayers, hoping for stardom. This is how it worked in that day and age. The religious people, Pharisees are one example. They would walk through town and at the time of prayer, they would go to the temple and people would stand there and watch them put on a show. And they would make these grandiose prayers with these huge words and they would, all the things they had memorized and they would go on and on and on with their prayers and they would use the voice and they would do it in such a way so that everybody saw them And everybody said, wow, that was a good prayer. If you've been around church long enough, maybe other churches, I don't think we do it here. I hope we don't do it here. They use a lot of Christianese, you know, a lot of little insider slang, lingo that only Christians would know about. Stuff that was made in the 70s and the 60s and stuff that sounds really good and sounds flowery and makes, you know, somebody really impressed by the way we repeat words over and over again or say things. That's what they would do. Maybe you've been to a church. I grew up in churches like this to where a guy would stand up and as he would stand up, he'd introduce, I'm going to pray now. And he would say, our father, dear father, God. And if you're from the South, there's a W in God and, and the voice would change. We beseech thee, heavenly father, we're coming unto thee so that thou might richly bless all that you have anointed I grew up like that wondering, first of all, thinking like, wow, where's like that prayer voice gift come from? And then they would like pray for 15 minutes and I'm like, wow. And then one day it dawned on me, they don't talk like that. In real life, they don't talk like that. Is that how it's supposed to work? I mean, those men don't come and go, oh, wife of my youth. Female to who I'm espoused unto. Children who have come from my loins. Come hither into my presence. Seriously? It was a show, right? That's what Jesus says. Why don't we just use our normal voice? But see, what was going on is that they were thinking that God sat in a box seat up there, removed from them, just clapping and applauding. Do you think that's how God responds to prayers, Jesus says? Look at this. He goes on to say this in verse 6. He says, here's what I want you to do. Instead of the show, oh, here's what I want you to do. 
Find a quiet, secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just you and God, nobody's listening, nobody's watching. Get up early, withdraw, go find a room, go find a closet, just turn all the lights off and just go in there, just you and God. And then it'll be just you and God, which is really the whole point anyway. Just you and God. You're having this conversation with your heavenly Father. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage. And here's the cool thing. The focus will shift from you, because God's not about you. He's about him. Your needs are not about you. It's about our Father who wants to meet our needs. It's going to shift from you to God, and you'll begin to sense his grace as opposed to law, as opposed to religion, as opposed to rules, as opposed to jumping through hoops, over hurdles, impressing someone. If you really want to pray, forget the show. Just withdraw quietly and find a secluded space space where you and God can be together. And that's where you're going to sense his love and grace in your life. Next couple verses, he says this. The world is full of so-called prayer warriors who are prayer ignorant. I like that. They're full of formulas and programs and advice, peddling techniques for getting what you want from God. We know that still exists today. The church is full of that. Specific prayers. If you pray this, then this is what God will give you. He promises if you do this, then this is what's... Oh, you didn't pray right. You got the thing backward. Remember somebody confronted me once because I didn't end with in Jesus' name. And I go like, well, what do you mean? Well, Jesus said in my name. I go, you don't even know what that means. It means in accordance with me. It means according to how I would pray. But it's like, it's like a, if you don't say in Jesus' name, Jesus isn't going to deliver. It's like you go to Santa and you give him the list. Dear Santa, da 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 I've been good. If you don't say you've been good, he doesn't know. And so guess what? You're not going to get your thing, right? Is that how we treat God? And sometimes prayer becomes a formula, right? And it's not bad for somebody to teach you to pray. In just a minute, Jesus is going to show us how to pray. But it's not a formula. It's an intimate, vital relationship. Not with the distant cosmic, you know, killjoy kind of God or a a sheriff that's out there trying to destroy all your your desires and clamp down on any fun you may have or a butler that you just ring the bell and pull the knob if he or she can come and serve you or just a vending machine if you can get the right 5e put your dollar 25 in you can get 5e and all of a sudden it shows out and if it doesn't and you put your dollar in you better start kicking that machine and knocking it because that's the guaranteed promise that's what's supposed to deliver right that's not your heavenly father. Just draw away with him. There's, these people are so full of formulas and programs and advice, peddling techniques for getting what you want from God. Don't fall for that nonsense. This is your father you're dealing with. Pastor Taylor said this earlier in the welcome. Almost 200 times Jesus refers to God as father. Now you got to understand how scandalous that was because in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and up to that time with the religious people, you didn't dare refer to God in such intimate familial terms. God was God and he's out there. And there was this deep respect for him and he was huge and he was holy. It's all true. But somehow in the midst of that, Jesus says, but that God, that holy God wants to draw close to us. We can draw close to him because he opens the door for that. And you can call him father. And the word that's used is this intimate word that a child would use with their dad, their daddy. And it's like Papa. It's the word Abba. 
And the whole simple idea is like you're so in love with your dad, you just want to hop up on his lap and tell him about your day and your hurts and your joys and your dreams and your experiences and the struggles, and you just curl up in his arms. Now, I know that's hard for some of us. It's hard for me for many years because that's not the relationship I had with my earthly father. I had a painful relationship with my earthly father abusive, angry person who I didn't want to draw close to. Oh, I obeyed the rules because if I didn't obey the rules, I'd get beaten. That's how it worked in my household. The belt would come off and I would be in pain for a long time. So I towed the line, right? And some of you grew up in a situation where your dad was abusive, where your dad was angry. A lot of you maybe statistically grew up in a home where dad wasn't even around. Single parent homes, unbelievable. I was talking to one of my friends, Harry. He used to be a Portland police officer. He was at the first service, and he was talking about the ache in the African-American community where the fatherlessness is off the charts in the last 20, 30, 40 years. That there's so many boys and girls being born into homes without fathers. And so what does it mean to relate to God as your heavenly father? Man, it took a lot of work, a big journey for me. And so some of you, when you think about God as your father, that's a painful one. But that's the picture Jesus paints. And when you can get it, when you can have healing, oh, it's beautiful. We'd love to walk with you. I'd love to help you on that journey as I've walked through that journey. So he says this. He knows better than what you know, than what you need. I mean, he knows your life. With a God like this loving, you can pray very simply. You can just come to him with a humble dependency and said, just like dad, father, papa, daddy man, this is my hurt. This is my need. This is my ache. This is my longing. This is my confusion. And he hears you and knows you. And then this is what Jesus says. He gives not a formula, but a pattern to pray. And he says this. He says, our father in heaven. Here it is. Our Abba, our daddy, our Papa, who's so high up in heaven but you're also so close to here. He says, reveal who you are. Now, this is the message paraphrase, so it gets a little weird uh, for some of us who memorized the King James or went to Catholic you know, school and you had to say a lot of our fathers. This ain't like any of those our fathers. I guarantee you that, okay? This is, this is a simple way to understand what Jesus was saying. Our Father, you're in heaven, but reveal who you are. Show me your glory. Show me who you are. Set the world right. Whatever you have up there, man, bring it down here. Your order, your godliness, your purity, your beauty, your purpose and plan, bring it here, God. I want to see it here on the earth. Do what's best as above, so below. Keep us alive with three square meals. Now, that's kind of funny, but when Jesus said, uh, give us this day our daily bread, that was a mystery for many, many centuries. What did Jesus mean? Because it was the only time those words were put together in uh, the New Testament and the original language. And so there was a lot of confusion. Give us today our daily bread. What is that? Well, it's kind of fascinating because in the Qumran scrolls, uh, 1947, 1948, they found these scrolls in the Dead Sea area called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Funny how that was named after that. And they pulled them out of these caves. And as they began to translate them over the decades, it took a long time. So much of it was just the Old Testament, the Bible. And you can see that if you go to Jerusalem. You can see the Isaiah Scroll. You can see all these scrolls. All of the Old Testament showed up, many of them in ways they had never before seen. 
No one had ever seen an original Isaiah scroll end to end, right? And so it was just amazing. It proved the validity of the scripture, that the Old Testament was 100% true, that even though buried for 2,000 years, what we have today is what they had back then. Well, and also along with that, they had all these other writings. It was a religious community, you know, rules about food, rules about how you act together, rules about discipline, rules about washing, eating, all this stuff. And then they, there was a shopping list they found. And it had this phrase on it about our daily bread. And it meant just enough for today. Now, I love that because that sounds just like the Old Testament. Just enough for today. That sounds like Moses in the wilderness with the children of Israel, right? The Hebrews. God showed up every morning with this provision in the form of manna. This little light flaky bread-like substance that was out there. And they would gather it. Now, here's the thing. God said, only gather enough for the day. Because guess what? I'll be here tomorrow. And if you gather more, it's going to spoil. It's going to rot. Maggots are going to infest it. Don't, don't, don't grab too much. Don't grab a week's worth. Because then you're not going to depend on me tomorrow or the rest of the days. Just grab what's right in front of you for your need and your family. And I'll be there tomorrow. That's what Jesus is saying. I just need today's meal, God. He says, keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others. That's a, that's a very important uh, reciprocal relationship there. We got to forgive others so God can forgive us. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil, right? Remember, again, um, I'm an old guy, Flip Wilson. The devil made me do it, right? No, the devil didn't make you do it. You know, if the devil made you do it, you're pretty impressive that the devil would actually work on you. You must be super spiritual, right? No, most of the time it's just our own desires run amok, right? Our own foolish choices. So keep us from our own temptations and, yeah, from the ones, the evil one, yeah, You're in charge, God. You can do anything you want to. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. You're ablaze in beauty. Yes, yes, yes. This is this amen and amen. Uh, Some translations say verily, verily. It's like the King James, you know. Yes, this is true, God. And that's, that's what Jesus says. And I think that something Jesus spoke on a hillside 2,000 years ago still relates to you and to me. In fact, I don't think it only relates to us. I think it needs to change us. I think it needs to cause us to reevaluate how we view God, reprioritize the purpose of prayer, to strip away the commercialization of what we've done with God and just simply to come to God as a father. Now, if you've had a good father, many of you have, you get this immediately. If you've had a bad father or an absent father or abusive father, maybe no dad at all, this is a painful situation. And as a side note, I think that's part of the enemy's tactic for our generations is to destroy fatherlessness in America. And then he distances God from us by nature. And we don't get it. But if you can get it, if you can come to healing about God being a father, not a product, not some scheme to get something, not some push the button and you get what you want, then you'll get it. Not some Amazon page. I'm not against Amazon. I'm one of their best customers. Why go to Safeway down the street when I can order on Amazon, right? I mean, think about this. This is great. And then when you sign up for Prime, you get it in a couple days, right? That's awesome. You know, you didn't know you needed it till you poked around, right? And you looked at this and you found it. You're like, I can get this in three days. I can get this in two days. You know what I discovered not long ago? I can get this tomorrow. 
I, I, don't, I don't have to have it delivered to an address that I may or may not be there. For convenience sake, I have it delivered to a locker at my bank. That's the best thing for me. I get a buzz. I get a text. It's been delivered. I shoot down on my bike, and I go grab that thing. I punch the six-digit code in there. The box opens up, and oh, my desires are met. I peel that plastic away, ruining the environment in the process. And I open that thing, and it's like, yes, I'm satisfied. Until I see something else on Amazon, right? And boy, the day when you order and you press the button, and the drone leaves the Hillsboro Amazon warehouse and hovers over to your house and lowers itself down, and you get a flashing light on your phone, and you go out and the drone drops in your hand. Heaven on earth, my friends. <laughs> and we go, well, why doesn't God do stuff like that? Because God is not our butler, and God is not Amazon, and God is not a bad father. You know what a bad father would do? Give his kids candy all day long. Now, some of you wives are elbowing your husbands. I understand why, because I know I, I've been there, right? Because what do you do when they clamor for candy all day long? Candy, candy, candy. I want some more candy, you know? It's like, didn't you have Halloween? Isn't that enough? No, I want candy. A, a bad father would just feed candy to his kids. I just make it easy. Just get a funnel, get some CNH pure cane sugar that's been bleached, and just drop it in their mouth. They'll be fine, right? But you know what? A good father doesn't give to his children what they want. He gives them what they need. And yeah, there's candy. After service, there's some food out there. There's some cake. That's great. I was a hypocrite because I went for the cake first after the last service. But there was a line for the burritos. And I was serving other people by letting them go first. (laughs) But a good, good father gives us exactly what we need. And that's who our heavenly father is. He's a good, good father who wants to come in and he wants to not serve us, but lead us to the greatest places, the greenest pastures, David wrote in his psalm. That's our father. And I I, I don't know what kind of pain in your life is because of your own father, the own struggle that you may have there. But I know this, that your heavenly father loves you and he wants to come into your life now and do work in your life that maybe is painful. I know it's been painful in mine, but it's purposeful and is truly loving. And he wants you to come up on his lap and just tell him your need and express your desires and tell him about your day and the good and the bad and the ugly and everything in between. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to close this message and this series with a prayer for you. It's actually a prayer that the Apostle Paul prayed to the church in Ephesus. And I want to just kind of personalize it to us as a church. So let's pray together as we bow. Uh, Sunrise Church, when I think of you, I fall down to my knees and I pray to our Heavenly Father, the creator of everything, everything in heaven and everything on the earth. And my prayer for you is that from his glorious unlimited resources, his wealth and riches, he will give you power. He will give you inner strength through the Holy Spirit he's placed inside of you. And then Jesus Christ himself will make his home in your hearts as you put your trust in him. 
And then your roots, the foundation, the stability of your spiritual life will grow down deep into God's love and he will keep you strong. And then you're going to have power to understand, as we all should as his sons and daughters, how wide and how long and how high and how deep this father's love for us truly is. And then you'll experience the love of Jesus Christ, though it is just truly too great to fully understand. And you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from knowing your heavenly father. And now all glory goes to him. And he is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish and achieve infinitely more than we could ever ask or ever think. And all the glory goes to our Father and through the church and in Jesus Christ, through your life, through my life, through the next generation, through all generations, forever and ever. Amen and amen. Father, I pray for sunrise this week, this weekend, this summer, this year, that our journey would be fully immersed in you as our heavenly father, that you would set the course, you would set the direction, you would provide, you would enrich, you would change, maybe repurpose. As we come before you, that we would discover that life is about knowing you, not thinking you would serve us. This world is not about us, it's about you. And as we come before you, Father, I pray you're the only audience that's out there. And all of our religious life, our spiritual life would be about knowing you and being changed by you. And whatever the need is, whatever the hurt, the ache is, the struggle, the gap is today, I pray that and we would take that right to you. And in community and family, we would share that together and see you richly provide. Because of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.